Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If money affects your life in any way, Money Making Sense will talk about it. Be financially healthy, wealthy, and wise. Here's your host, Heather Kelly. Welcome to Money Making Sense, the show that talks about all things money. Today, we are talking about travel in Europe, and I have a very special guest, Rick Steves, who is a travel guru. You are also an author, and I have in front of me, Rick, Europe's top 100 masterpieces. In fact, you are doing a PBS series. It's a brand new series called The Art of Europe, which I'm hoping a lot of us will begin to enjoy. Well, thank you. Yes, we've been, it's a two year project. We finally finished our Art of Europe series. It's a six hour, six week mini series and it's airing all over the country on public television. And for me, it's sort of like something I've long wanted to do was, was weave all the, the artistic wonders of Europe into a six hour story. It's a fascinating and beautiful story. I think a lot of my listeners might be asking, what on earth does art have to do with money? Have you seen the prices that people will buy art masterpieces for? I mean, good Lord. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> so, even to go see this stuff, you spend a lot of money yes. getting there. And if you uh, if you sort through all the superlatives, if you plan your time right, and if you bring an understanding of the art with you, the experience is three times as rewarding. So that's a good budget tip. That's a practical tip. Yeah. And nowadays, with all the memes out there, there are people using some famous art to create a meme. And if you don't understand what the art is, you may not understand what the meme means. So oh, there you go. I hadn't <laughs> thought about that, but that's a good angle. And that's probably one reason to take a look at Europe's top 100 masterpieces. That was so fun for, for me and my co-author to sit down and just have a debate and come up with the 100 best pieces of art and then tell the story with a artfully sort of crafted essay on each piece of art in a beautiful full-page color photograph. And I've written a 400-page uh, European, it's called Europe 101, History and Art for the Travelers book, which I love, but it's a heavy book. And this is a hundred delightful essays that take you from the prehistoric cave paintings right up to Picasso. And it is such a delightful way to sweep through the, the fascinating story of European art and architecture. How did you narrow down 100? Because there are hundreds of thousands of gorgeous art pieces throughout yeah. all of Europe. And I've been to a lot of the museums, so I know. But how do you decide what are the hundred top pieces? Part of it is accessibility. I mean, that underlines all the work that I do with my tours with my Rick Steves guidebooks with our TV show 
we want everything to be accessible to our travelers and our viewers and our readers. So we want art that, you know, if it's right there in Paris, you're going to be in Paris. Uh, did you know you could go to see this amazing tapestry where all of a sudden Europe is coming out of the dark ages and people are getting sensuous and there's all the senses that are being discovered and people are actually sexy. And when you think about that in medieval terms, it's kind of like titillating. Uh, and to, to see this tapestry and to be able to understand it, we've got something to say. So that's accessible, it's different, it's underrated, and there are lessons to be learned from it. So, of course, we're going to do Mona Lisa, and of course, we're going to do, you know, uh, Botticelli's Primavera and Leonardo's Last Supper. Uh, those are great, and there's lots to say about them. But we also wanted to find some new artists and to be able to celebrate the Pre-Raphaelites and Gustav Klimt and... Uh, Fra Angelico and Hieronymus Bosch. And uh, there is so much to learn from and be inspired by this art. And I've been lucky as a tour guide to be able to enjoy local European art historians show me this stuff. And I'll tell you, if you have somebody who knows what they're talking about to introduce you to the art, you just go, wow, why did nobody tell me that before? This is just not only beautiful, but it's fascinating. You have spoken a couple of times on if you spend your time wisely. What do you consider spending your time wisely before you even go see these art pieces? Well, it's good, Heather, to know a little bit about what we're looking at. Before you, you go to Europe, understand what feudalism is. Understand why the Renaissance is a big deal. Understand why they were cutting off people's heads in Paris in, in 1789 and so on. Understand what World War I did to Europe when half of all the men in France between 15 and 30 were casualties. Half of all the men. It's amazing to think about how Europe suffered in World War I. Understand that context. And then do your best to approach the art and approach your sightseeing in the mindset. I mean, before Gutenberg had the printing press, books had to be handwritten out. Who could afford that? And books were written only in the language of Latin, so you had to have a higher education to be able to get your hands on this information. So the information was kept away from the people because of this whole idea of Latin only, not the vernacular language, and it's handwritten, so it's very expensive. Suddenly, with the modern age, 500 years ago, you've got Gutenberg in the printing press, You've got Martin Luther translating the, the Bible into people's language. You've got information going literally, I mean, it's like the, the medieval equivalent of viral uh, when you can print it up in these little pamphlets. More people were learning to read and things were being written in the local language. That opened people up to sharing ideas. That is a big deal. And if you look at it through 21st century eyes, you might not understand it. But if you can put yourself back 500 years ago, then you realize, oh, now I get it. And, you know, what happened when Luther translated the Bible and Gutenberg helped him print it up and Luther had a, a great political cartoonist and a guy named Kronik, what happened was it opened a Pandora's box where, where some Protestant reformers said, okay, now everybody has the freedom to carve their own path to hell. And uh, you had an alternative to Roman Catholicism and Europe was embroiled in a huge war, decades long. And at the end of the war, and what's 1648, a third of Germany was dead. A lot of people call this the First World War. Uh, why was that? Well, that was a tumultuous time. And when they came out of that, people just were exhausted. And they said, let's just stop fighting and just let me go to church and get an image of heaven. And let's have pro-status quo. And if you're a divine monarch, okay. God said, you get to rule me. I'll just do what you say, but give me some stability. And we have pro-stability art, which is Baroque. 
And you look at that Baroque art and your king looks just like God said you get a rule. And there you have Louis the Fourteenth. And of course, power corrupts and these guys overplayed their hand and it pushed Europe into the revolution. And then we have a whole new age called neoclassicism where everything was subjected to the test of reason. Nothing was sacred. And you see that in the art. So my challenge is to put this into layman's terms and to make it easy to get your brain around it and to help the art help you get excited about this fascinating story of how Europe evolved. And it's pretty straightforward. And now that we've got this six-hour art series that's airing all over the country in the next few weeks on public television, for me to be able to celebrate having woven together all of the greatest art and all of the most important points to make, it's just a, a teaching thrill. I'm just, I'm just really feeling energized and so excited about it. So I think each of the, the episodes covers one era in, in the art world. Is that correct? Well, it was, it was kind of funny. If I was Ken Burns, I'd probably have 20 hours, you know, but I, <laughs> I limit it to six hours. I love the, the challenge of making it tight and fast moving, but it was a little bit arbitrary. How am I going to break Europe into six hours? And I wasn't actually sure how it would pan out. So I did my best in the start, and it actually panned out really well. Of the six hours, I'll just go through them really quickly. The first hour takes you from Stonehenge and the megalithic stuff and the prehistoric cave paintings all the way through the end of ancient Greece. And then the second hour is a thousand years from 500 BC to 500 AD. That's the Roman Empire. It grew for 500 years, it peaked for 200 years, and it fell for 300 years. The third hour is the Middle Ages, and that's from roughly 500 to 1500. The first half would be the early Middle Ages, previously called the Dark Ages. And then around the year 1000, things kicked into gear, and we get Romanesque, and we get Gothic and the High Middle Ages. Then we have an hour for the Renaissance, which is basically 1400 to 1600, both in Italy and all around Europe. And the Renaissance led to the Baroque Age, and the excesses of the Baroque Age led to the Age of Revolution and Neoclassicism. So that's the fifth hour, 1600 to 1850. And then the last hour is modern, and that goes Romanticism, Impressionism, and then all the crazyisms of the 20th century. <laughs> and so those are my parameters. And then I had about, what is it, 7,000 words per hour to weave it together. I had the archive of everything we've shot over the last 20 years and all the greatest museums and palaces around Europe. Plus, I went to Europe on uh, three trips with the crew just last year, and we went to what turned out to be, the, I think, the seven most richest places to be doing our filming and lacing it all together. We spent time in, if I can remember it, in Florence, Rome, Athens, London, Paris, Bruges, Madrid, and Vienna. So those are the great art capitals in so many ways. And uh, to be there and to be legal in the museums, and in a lot of cases, all alone with the greatest oh. art in Europe, it's just like, oh, oh baby, I need a cigarette. <laughs> I would be right there with you. <laughs> you had mentioned that last hour is the the modern ones. I think a lot of people might be interested that Picasso, whom most people think of as cubism and, you know, the woman's right. nose is on the back of her head and people are like, right. what is that? <laughs> but he didn't start off that way. He, he didn't no. start out doing cube for. Oh, so, no, no. He was he spanned so much of the 20th century. And Picasso. First of all, like any artistic genius, I, most artistic genius, he went to school and he learned how to do everything really, really conventional. And then the very end, he finally, he, he, he even wrote, uh, in, as a child, I learned to paint like an adult. And finally, as an adult, I learned to paint like a child, you know. So he went sort of freedom at the end. 
But as he evolved, he went through all these different stages. What, what impresses me is he was so good as a teenager at doing reality that you realize going beyond reality was not a cheap stunt. It was a, a, a mark of his genius. And my favorite Picasso painting is Guernica. And Guernica is a mural. It's 25 feet wide. Mm -hmm. It was made in the 1930s after Franco bombed uh, the city of Guernica in Basque country during the Spanish Civil War. And in, in the 1930s, Spain was ripped by a, a civil war. Hitler was just putting his his air force together, and he was learning, hey, you can drop bombs from airplanes. That sounds exciting. So Hitler had a fascist friend in Franco, and he told Franco, hey, would you like me to try out my bombs and see if, what it's like? And the very first aerial bombardment was by, by German planes for Franco over the little Basque town of Guernica, and it was just the first aerial bombard, and it was horrible. And Picasso, along with the rest of Europe, was just traumatized by it. And Picasso set out to make this amazing mural. You've got horses screaming. You've got soldiers falling with broken swords. You've got the bull, the symbol of Spain, looking up at, at God going, what's going on here? You've got a mother with her dead baby, a modern pieta. And this is a, it's a cubist masterpiece. And what we have here is a genius, Picasso, after a horrible thing that, that sort of is, is foretelling what's going to go on in World War II when millions of innocent people died. We are having Picasso putting a human face on collateral damage. In other words, lots of people, innocent people die in wars, and people who drop the bombs call it collateral damage. But, but Picasso humanized that. And, and that's the big tapestry that, that's hanging in the United Nations when big questions of war and peace are made. It is the art piece of Spain's 20th century, and when we go to Madrid, we need to see the, the greatest piece of 20th century art in Europe, I think, Picasso's Guernica. And with a little context like what I just gave, it becomes a much more meaningful experience. So as a guidebook writer and as a tour guide and a TV producer, you don't even have to go to Madrid to appreciate that. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a whole chapter in the Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces book where I can explain that in an artfully written essay. And then you have a big, beautiful color photograph of the piece of art itself and uh, it's a very important part of anybody who's going to talk about the art and the sweep of history in Europe. And it's an example of how when we know art, we get an inside track into being clued in to the exciting story of Europe. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rick Steves. Again, you are an author, you're a TV host, you're a travel guru, and I know you mostly as the travel guru person. <laughs> I look forward to uh, the newest PBS special, and I hope a lot of the listeners get a chance to tune in as well. Thank you so much, Heather. Delight to talk to you, and thanks for letting me share my enthusiasm for Rick Steve's Art of Europe. It's going to be a lot of fun to watch on public television. Thanks for listening. You can email me with any questions or topics you want to hear about at hkelly at ksl.com. That's h-k-e-l-l-y at ksl.com. And because this is Money Making Sense, you can subscribe for free on Spotify, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast, and you'll never miss another episode. Thanks for being a Money Making Sense listener. Follow your common sense on the social media, Money Making Sense, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new season three, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. 
Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts.